it's been the uh, habit <clears throat> to have a prayer uh, to open with, and I've been uh, pulling prayers by scientists or for scientists. This is uh, called an Akathist hymn, which is a traditional kind of hymn from the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, that's all I know about it, so uh, you, you can do what I did. You can go Google it and find out the, the full story on it. Um, this was written by a Metropolitan Tripon, and uh, one source I found said that this was written while he was in a uh, prison camp. I don't know. Some other source said that that was actually misattributed to another Russian patriarch. So, anyway, this is a portion of the, the, the hymn. It's very long. This is a, it's called Icos 7. I don't know if that means verse or not, but anyway. Yeah. I will be reading the white parts, and you, please, will read the blue parts. Almighty God, the breath of your Holy Spirit inspires artists, poets, and scientists. The power of your supreme knowledge makes them prophets and interpreters of your laws, who reveal the depths of your creative wisdom. Their works speak unwittingly of you. How great are you in your creation. How great are you in man. Glory to you, showing your unsurpassable power in the laws of the universe. Glory to you, for all nature is filled with your laws. Glory to you for what you have revealed to us in your mercy. Glory, Glory to you for what you have hidden from us in your wisdom. Glory to you for the inventiveness of the human mind. Glory, Glory to you for the dignity of man's labor. Glory to you for the tongues of fire that bring inspiration. Glory, Glory to you, O God, from age to age. Amen. Amen. Um, all right, so we've been talking about um, uh, some in our kind of uh, science moment. We've been talking about some cosmic stuff that's been happening. Um, I think uh, this was an interesting uh, kind of development that, that popped up in this past week. And it's, um, I, so the, the headline here, how an ancient solar flare illuminated the start of the Viking Age. So in 793, um, a group of marauders showed up on, uh, out on the, off the coast of England and um, laid waste to this, uh, this small town. And the uh, Christians of the time, I think they said, heathen men destroyed God's church in Lindisfarne Island by fierce robbery and slaughter. So this is the first um, account of the beginning of the Viking Age. Right? And so for roughly 300 years, this is like the reign of terror, uh, of Viking terror that unfolds from this moment. And so... Um, the question is, well, where did those, those Vikings come from? We kind of know where geographically, but what made them decide to become uh, these uh, raiders and pillagers like they did? And so this is kind of a historic mystery um, to understand yeah, what pushed them over the edge. So one of the ways that people have been exploring this is looking um, at, I believe it's called Ribe, which is Denmark's oldest town. And this is, as you can see, kind of uh, well-placed to be a trading in these trading routes. And so as all these um, different voyagers come through and they trade and so forth, this town becomes a microcosm of the world at that time. Right? The objects that are being bought and sold here are from all over and basically record this entire history of, of travel and, and trade and so forth. And so what's great about this is that this town... Um, has been uh, well preserved um, so that you actually have these layers 
um, of all the material that they were creating and trading and producing. And this is just incredibly well layered. So you can look at, well, this is when these people showed up. This is when these kinds of coins, this is when um, these beads were here. These are a set of antlers you only find in this area of, of the world. Um, so we know that that's when those people came. And so this is a great kind of um, record of this period of time, right, in this kind of Viking era. And um, so they're looking at this to see, like, how, like, what were the Vikings doing before they, uh, you know, went off on this reign of terror. Um, and, um, yeah, what, what kind of kicked that off? So um, you've probably... Um, uh, probably everyone's heard of radiocarbon dating. And so the way this, this works, so we want to know like where these layers actually line up, like which uh, layer corresponds to which year. And we have ways of, of determining that based on other kind of context. But radiocarbon dating is one of the ways they can localize this. And so radiocarbon dating works by um, there's a certain percentage of carbon-14 in the atmosphere and a certain percentage of carbon-12. And when plants photosynthesize, they pull in carbon from the atmosphere. And so they pull in that same ratio into the plants. And then animals eat the plants. And it's a whole circle of life thing. And so as long as plants or animals are living, they're kind of in sync with the atmosphere. When they die, they stop eating. They stop photosynthesizing. They stop breathing. And so they go into this stasis. And at that point, um, the clock starts ticking. Because then you can say, well, the carbon-14 that was in their body when they died, carbon-14 decays. And so as it decays, it decays in this very predictable rate. The half-life is, I think, 5,730 years. Um, it's, um, you can just measure how much carbon-14 is left in, in this creature, in this <laughs> system. And as that drains down, you know a certain amount of time has passed. This is, uh, we, we know that carbon uh, clock with a high degree of accuracy, but it only goes up to, because eventually all the carbon drain, drain the carbon-14 um, does degrade and is gone, and so then uh, roughly at 50,000 years, that's the limit of what you can date with this kind of methodology. But if you think about that, you might have a few questions. In the atmosphere, if carbon-14 is always decaying, why is there carbon-14 in the atmosphere? Yeah. Cosmic rays, yeah. So, um, and... More than the pizza shop. Yeah. So, the, um, uh, the, the cosmic rays that, that bombard the atmosphere are constantly generating carbon-14 in our atmosphere. And so, we're replenishing the, um, the supply, right? And so what that means is that our kind of clock, this radiocarbon clock on Earth that we're using to date human uh, events and human settlements is actually in sync with the cosmos in important ways, right? And we've been talking a little bit about cosmic clocks like pulsars and so forth, things like this. But um, so what you need to do to be able to date this kind of stuff to, with, uh, to within a great degree of accuracy is you need to know what kinds of cosmic events were happening in particular times. And um, so one of the things that has been, um, they've been able to kind of like drill down on 
is a solar flare that happened in 775. So um, observers in Western Europe reported seeing um, streaks across the sky, uh, a red cross, inflamed shields, fires from heaven, and snakes slithering across the sky, right? So this is, uh, the, they think this is probably a description of something like the Aurora Borealis, right? This is how people were describing this at the time. So, um, so we have this description uh, around this time of people's observation of it. And um, then the question is, can you sync this up? And so they've compiled a history using tree rings and ice core rings, which are similar to tree rings, just in ice, um, uh, of, of, the, of how much carbon was in the atmosphere at different times. Um, and like with these known trees, trees with known ages and so forth. And so they've been able to align this and create this kind of calendar with some gaps. And so this description of the, of the solar flare is that ha helping to fill in some of the gaps of, of where we're understanding the, the timeline to go. And they've been able to correlate that solar flare, the description of that solar flare, with these spikes in the carbon-14 in the atmosphere as recorded in ice cores and various trees in Japan. And, um, and so this has uh, actually like, located this calendar pretty precisely to where they're able to say, yep, here's the line where 775 happened. We see the, the uh, carbon-14 ratios spike there. That's where the solar flare happened. And then um, here's the things that were being traded before and after. And um, what this has determined is basically that um, right up until 793, the Vikings were being nice, quiet, traders going all around, trading nice beads and so forth, apparently not raping and pillaging. So we still don't know what pushed them over the edge, but we know they were quiet, uh, quiet conventional types up until the moment it did. Anyway, there's our, <laughs> there's our reflection for today. All right, so um, we're going to read uh, a scripture here, and Daniel's going to read the first part, and we've read this before. Daniel's going to read the first part, and then, again, we'll have um, all of us read the part in blue. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voices go out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. All right, so we actually read this passage um, 
several weeks ago, and, and one of the things that um, I tried to point out, um, not only is there a, a, a calling to look at the skies and, and look at the knowledge that God has placed in creation, but there is an um, account here of the way that God has actually orchestrated the heavens to work, right? And in, in, to work in order to give life. So he says uh, the sun um, goes this circuit, nothing is deprived of its warmth. And that's when the psalmist turns and um, praises the Lord and the law of the Lord, right? Um, and so I just I want to point that out because we'll come back to it. So over the course of this class, we started off um, talking about three paths that people uh, could take in the relationship between science and faith. And one path is the path of conflict. It's if you have this idea that science and faith are inevitably in, con in conflict, then ultimately if you want your science, you're going to have to let go of your faith. And if you want your faith, you're going to have to let go of your science. That's, the, that's one path. The second path is actually a little more subtle, a little more nuanced. It's uh, what I'm calling the, the path of irrelevance. But you will hear it described in lots of places as something like non-overlapping magisteria. And what this means is that these are talking about two separate things. The science is talking about one thing and faith is talking about a different thing. This is a really popular thing in uh, political circles where they're seeking funding because then you can say my scientific project is not going to overthrow anybody's religion and that's that plays really great with the US Congress but um, but my argument is like that this is not a um, the, I, I, well let me say this I think most most of our culture is going this direction science and faith are, are just two different things but um, what you end up with then is you, you end up with a situation where you say uh, faith is fine, religion is fine, um, but I live in a scientific and technological world that shows me where I came from, where I'm going. It tells me how everything works. It gives me awe and wonder at the workings of creation. It cures my diseases. It heals uh, my sicknesses. It does all these things for me. That's pretty great. Why do I actually need faith? So that's why I call it the path of irrelevance. We put these two things as not speaking to each other. Eventually, maybe you're not going to like be antagonistic like the path of conflict, but eventually you might find yourself choosing one. The third path um, that we talked about is the path of relationship. And this is a path where um, science and faith are actually intimately connected where science and faith actually speak into each other and relate to each other in a profound and powerful way. And it's been my experience that people who take this path, although it's more challenging in some ways, actually find that science begins to strengthen and deepen their faith, and that faith actually helps inform their, their work and their appreciation for science. All right, so we can get um, a, a path to a much stronger sense of faith, much stronger sense of science if we pursue this path of relationship, even if it is more challenging. So that's the path we've been exploring with this class, yeah. Any, any documents on what percent of scientists might be in that third camp? Um, I mean, I mean, that's probably hard 
yeah. not something to study, right? Or is it is it ninety ten or ten ninety or you know what's the thought? Well, so doing it this in this camp or pathway, um, this is the. I don't think there's been any studies on that. There has been studies of religious affiliation among scientists, right? And it's actually, it's, um, I think it's lower than the general population, but it's um, not nearly as low as some people would have you believe, right? It's, it's um, not, uh, for many, many people, it's not a problem at all. Now, that, that's the question, you know, like, how, do, how does each person integrate that, reconcile it, bring it together? And that's going to be different for a lot of different people. And some, some of those people are going to do it by like, well, we, the, we just don't think of them as the same. And some people are going to have a much more nuanced idea about the relationship. How do you define science and how do you define faith? Yeah, so fa faith is the, okay. It's available on the website, by the way. Oh, yeah. First class. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, First class and it's available on the website. Thanks for not doing the reading. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, so. I'm new here. I'm new. <laughs> so we, we defined science uh, simply as the, the pursuit of knowledge about the physical world. Okay. We define technology as the use or application of knowledge to the physical world. Um, I don't know if we defined faith. Uh, I, I, did, I, don't I don't think we did. did. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's um, I think it's more complex because faith is a in some ways a much broader sort of things. It's, it's a question of epistemology. How do you know what you know? It's a question of how you order your life, how you, what communities you live in, ethics, all these kinds of things become involved in that. When we say faith, that's what we mean. Now, the, the reason that th this is a question um, is not just because sometimes our faith tradition says something like the sun goes around the earth and, and the scientific tradition says something else like the earth goes around the sun. It's not just that. It's actually all, all these other questions that come into it about uh, how are we to, to live in the world, right? What do we go to to find answers to our problems and our questions and so forth? And those, that, those kind of questions get really hairy. Yeah? It seems to me that beyond what Yeah, uh, yeah, I think that's right. I think I think this path of, of, yeah, questioning is there any kind of connection at all is the the, the path that that a large part of our society is, is going to head down, and then yeah, if we're people of faith, we're we're d faced with a difficult question. But I do think that that, that is, uh, there's a direct corollary there in teachers and faculty that have. Take it, science, take it to be, you can't have uh, science yeah. and faith. Yeah. That, that they're, they're incongruous and that's not true. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, doesn't, you see some absurd positions that people take in that camp. And 
I've got friends that you know hold that, and it seems to me it comes down at some point to biblical interpretation. They're interpreting in a certain way, and they're they're not mm -hmm. willing to let go of that no matter what evidence. Yeah. Contrary. So I, I wonder how much. Yeah. There. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of layers uh, of of stuff there. Um, so if you if you take um, if you just say it's a matter of biblical interpretation, right? Uh, it's possible for a lot of us who you know we um, you know we think about context, we think about narrative, we think about all these kinds of things. It's possible for most of us to kind of get our mind around to like kind of whatever interpretation we need, right? So mo all, for a lot of us, we're not going to be these stalwart people who are like, well, it said the the earth has foundations, and so I believe in a flat earth or so, you know, something like this, right? Like, we're not stuck there. But the, I think the danger is once we just start moving things around, <laughs> uh, what, we don't have anything else where we're talking about that, where that relationship actually comes in. So what I want to suggest, what I've been suggesting in this class, is we actually do have a scriptural, biblical um, connecting point where we say this is where science and faith um, actually come together and something that we actually do need to um, really get serious about and, and, um, and dig down on. And that is ultimately um, Genesis 1, image of God, uh, what is our calling, right? And so this is, in this, um, over the course of this class, this is the path we've been taking, the path of relationship. And we've been saying, essentially, uh, let's explore this idea that science is a divine calling. That science is a calling of God for humanity to seek out knowledge about the physical world and use that knowledge for the bettering of life. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. We've talked about the idea that this is the calling that God gave to humanity in, in its first moments. And we've looked at some kind of scientific evidence that shows that humans for their entire existence, from our earliest existence, were using our scientific and technological skills to create and cultivate life. This is the kind of work uh, we've been doing. Uh, we've also looked at the, the fact that we are using our scientific and technological skills to peer into the depths of the universe, right? We've, we've harnessed um, gravitational waves and pulsars and all these things to unpack the mysteries of creation in ways that our ancestors would, uh, could not have even imagined, right? Um, and we've, uh, you know, touched on how that even just in the last year, has played out in really significant ways, where um, for all of Earth's history, life on this planet was under threat of killer asteroids. 2022, we put a spacecraft um, on a mission to deflect asteroids and have demonstrated that, that the world does not have to fear this anymore. Right? The, the, asteroid that killed the dinosaurs left a dividing line in the geological record and the dividing line we've put in history is just as profound. I said it uh, the other week that it's e even perhaps a cosmic dividing line in history. We're the first 
planet potentially in the universe to start deflecting asteroids rather than colliding into them. This is the kind of capacity that God has given us and called us to use on behalf of, of life. Right? This is the idea that we've been um, exploring. We also have talked about um, the idea that the scientific revolution uh, really was um, uh, put together as a religious mission. This is uh, historian Peter Harrison's account. It says, why did the scientific revolution work? Why did it take off? It's because uh, there was this movement um, of Christians who were looking back at scripture, looking back at this divine calling and saying, we should be doing this work. This is work that people of God are supposed to be involved in. And so they, clergy, devout religious people began forming scientific institutions and those institutions became uh, the things that have stood for centuries pushing scientific progress forward. Uh, we looked a few weeks ago at the idea that, that science was actually um, reading Genesis liturgically, reading it as a pattern for our own creative work, and that the idea that we have of the scientific method actually comes out of this idea that God has laid out a methodology for us to use in our um, work with the physical world. And last week we talked about the idea that um, really changed um, the nature of the scientific process, I think, um, and is still recognized by scientists today that in, in effect, the scientific tradition, the scientific institutions are a sort of institutionalized humility, a sort of return, a, a recurring return to uh, being humble. And this works by the fact that um, science is is constructed in such a way that everyone is open to challenge. And in fact, the scientific process itself is a process of challenging yourself. You go to nature, you go to the world, and you do experiments that have a strong likelihood of showing you to be wrong. That's the process, right? Um, so I want to um, reframe some of this discussion a little bit, and I want to ask you, uh, this. Why does science work? Define work. Yeah, so that's a good good <laughs> question. A conversation that yeah. I have all the time. He always <laughs> likes to talk about what works. I'm like, okay, well, what, what does that mean? So define mm -hmm. what works is. Uh, works means doubles our lifespan in a century. Doubles our life expectancy. So 1900, uh, the life expectancy worldwide was half of what it is now, globally. Saving the planet from catastrophe. Saving the planet from catastrophe, right? Uh, being able to deflect asteroids, right? All the ancient world and all their splendor uh, could not do that, something like that. Yeah. Uh, I'll throw out something uh, it's measurable and repeatable. Okay, yeah. So and that's so that's an answer why, why it works. It's measurable and repeatable. What do you think is the the value of that? Um, I was thinking about this in line with the Vikings. I yeah. Think, uh, science takes its leaps when it responds to a threat. Okay. And proceeds. Uh, oh. I think I think that's kind of the, the virtuous cycle of humanity yeah. is. Yeah. You know, you can look at vaccines. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think it's responding to threat. 
positively with measurable Yeah. Let's go here and then. I think at its, at its base of science works because it uses the laws of the universe mm. and takes advantage of them, whether on microscopic scale or macroscopic scale, yeah. and employs them to do things. That's why it works. What, tell me why that, like how that works. What, what is it about using the laws of the universe? Why does that <clears throat> uh, huh. <laughs> if you drop a ball and uh, it goes up and it doesn't go up, uh, yeah, yeah. you're in trouble, right? We're talking about chem you, chemistry. You know, we're, yeah. we're making things in labs. We're yeah. synthetically producing things. Yeah. We're not able to do that because we're making this up. It's yeah. because the laws of nature. So yeah, so the so the laws the laws go into this measurable and repeatable thing, yeah. right? Yeah, and then we'll go back to. That. I think science works because God gave us the spirit of curiosity. Okay. And if God didn't give us that, yeah, then people wouldn't be curious about the world, and they wouldn't yeah. test the theories, and just this um, the scientist brain just has so much of. Oh yeah, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Go back here and then. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Things become. Yeah. Right. Right. So the the comment there, and I, I'm I'm trying to remember to repeat this for the um, for the reporter, but the comment there, like, um, yeah, we get on an airplane and we we expect that it's going to work that the same as it did yesterday. Now, you might say, well, there's you know occasionally there's plane crashes and so forth. What we're not concerned about is that the laws of aerodynamics are going to suddenly change and then planes are not going to fly anymore, right? We understand exactly where the weak parts in that are and where they aren't. Um, and the, the laws of nature are the part that we're not worried about. We're worried about the pilot, whether he's drunk or whatever, right? So, yeah. I, and, you know, I'll take away the curiosity part I liked a lot, but being more in the metalworking field, I love the, the fact, going back to the Vikings, I think one of the quests that for them to move was the quest for steel. We're going yeah. from a bronze age to a iron age to a steel age. Now today, you know, we're dealing with materials like titaniums and, and things mm -hmm. that, and science works because the curiosity of creating stronger, lighter, better yeah. materials for yeah. different industries. One thing I was thinking about is why science works is because it works. It's because it works. <laughs> the, uh, the idea of the person that invented or found out that red hole yeah. could become penicillin. seems to me that what we read from the psalmist is the reason why science works. Mm, say that. We read that first part is that 
this all happens so that people can undeniably see God mm. in everything. Mm. That, and, and why does science work? So that as you go through this, at the end of this, you see God being revealed through the creation, mm. through the scientific process, through poetry, that, that in the end, it's the whole idea of God being revealed. And that's why it works. Because mm. if it didn't work, you'd have to say, well, <clears throat> so I, I, I think mm. the psalmist said, this is why it works. Mm. I like that. It, it works because it's, um, it's to ultimately reveal uh, and, and help people glorify God, and God wouldn't do that in a way that didn't work, something exactly. like that. Okay, yeah, I like it. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Um, so I was having a discussion with a, a troublemaker about this class, <laughs> and he said, Uh-oh. you do understand that all of science came from the line of Cain, Okay. <laughs> and, uh, a I, mysterious I troublemaker, yeah. Can we, can we do the truth thing? Oh, no. That's a good... Okay, yeah. So, okay. Go, so, go for it. So my one contribution to this class is I bounced back and forth between pagan life and religious life for a whole life. But my dad's a seminary professor, and so the thing he gave me, I was in a play that I thought was blasphemous when I was 15, so I quit like a good evangelical, and he was like, no, you can't quit. Is that, why? I was like, well, they're putting God on trial, it's rude to me the Christians. And he was like, okay, is it, is what they're saying true? And I was like, well, sort of, because it's like crusade and stuff. The, the point of the play was, you know, yeah. Well, then, it's not blasphemous. Anything that's true, he already knows about it not true, it'll fail under its own merits. And that's by one rule that's worked <laughs> for another yeah. 29 years of hopping back and forth between like the, all of science belongs to Cain. Okay, great, let's walk through if that's factually correct. You get arguments about facts, it's what's modern. But, but, but that's on both sides, you know, this idea that like, religion only ever works, or, or, or religion that, or um, science is basically, gets into kind of a humanistic we're here to glorify ourselves. It's amazing what humans are capable of. We don't need religion. Yeah. But, like, you can sort of... I've rested easy being able to slice both of those apart. What, yeah, what, what, what is your, your statement there? If it's true, it's not blasphemous? Well, it's true. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, God, God, God already knows it. He already it. knows about it. Yeah. Not news to him. Yeah, uh, that's, that's uh, good. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot uh, of stuff we could unpack about how scripture thinks about and works with science, uh, especially in these early chapters of Genesis. Like, it's very rich, and I think we've been taught to read it as the, in this like non-scientific, non-technological way. Ancient people were reading this and thinking, could I build a boat that big? Like, what kind of tools would I need? Why would you need it to be that big? Oh, for these animals? Like, you know, like there is a whole sort of technological and scientific thought process that the, the authors and readers of these texts are engaging in as they are working through, like, what does this revelation say? Yeah, I, I mean, the first, the, the first person that I would consider even being a scientist is Adam. I mean, they're naming the animals, they're classifying them. Right. They're taking care of the garden, which means they have to have insights into how plants grow. Right. So, yep. yeah, that's the lame word. There's no weeds before the fall. <laughs> outside, the, outside the fence. Um, Every time I do yard work, I think about the curse of pain. This is exactly how uh, 
a lot of people in the scientific revolution era thought of it. Naming of the creatures. This is a scientific work. It's imitation of the work of God. God names and categorizes creation. God leads Adam to name and categorize creation, calls humanity to order creation, all of this kind of stuff. This is scientific work. This is how they understood, like how they formulated, how they defined what science actually is, is like this thing. And um, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but the, the taxonomic system that we, we have, where we're homo sapiens sapiens, and there's like all the, I, can't, I can never remember the other ones except ratus ratus, which is a rat. Um, but the, there are all the different, uh, like the genomes and, and species and so, or so forth. Um, all of that um, ultimately emerged from that desire to do what Adam was doing. Like it was explicitly thought about in those terms. Um, all right, so I'm going to ask a different question here. What are the alternatives to science? So if we were to, to downgrade science or put it aside or look for something else to help us make sense of the world, to make the world work the way we wanted to, like what are the current alternatives that, that might be on offer? Superstition and feeling. Okay, superstition and feeling. You can revert to superstition. Yeah. Which, um, so an example is in the medieval times, uh, there was a belief that if um, somebody had been murdered and the murderer touched the corpse and the corpse bled, then, oh, that's proof that that yeah, person yeah, is the yeah. murderer. Yeah. Or, so superstition, or we could go with feeling, well, I just feel that, sure. I feel so strongly that this is true, and sure. therefore it's true. Yeah. Okay. And I'm not offering any examples. Yeah, <laughs> 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 sure. Uh, I, I've seen lots of examples. Yeah. Politics, yeah. Whatever the, yeah. whatever the majority thinks. Yeah. Yeah. Cultism. It, cultism. Say, say more about that. Well, you need to think about how often what she's talking, what she's saying, politics is. Mm -hmm. you, you've got a group that says this is the Earth is flat. Okay, so there's still mm -hmm. a people out there for yeah. the flat Earth theory. Yeah. And, you know, it's without yeah. proof of science. Yeah. There's nothing to deny the cult. Yeah, the uh, something I'll say about politics. Not only can politics be a way that we look to establish truth, it can also be a way we look to establish power, right? I was, mm -hmm. was going to say the opposite. It's also whatever the people in power say is true. Is true. Sure. Right? So yeah. Not even necessarily yeah. the majority. The authoritarianism. Right. It's, it's explicitly not the majority. Yeah, yeah. Right, and then um, when you can think of the scientific method, one of the most interesting things I ever learned in college is when they are trying to integrate athletes the athletic teams of South Africa. No one would ever let a black man race a white man, period. We're faster, there's no point in having the race. But it always be canceled. For 50, for generations, that was the one. The first one that was integrated was the ping, was the Olympic ping pong team, because nobody had any ego tied to integrating it. Then they had the very first integrated table tennis team in the world, and it went fine. And everything that, everything from there to apartheid, that was like the, the human aspect of this is just, yeah. if you, without science to say, but is he really faster, right? We have stopwatches. We don't need right. to like, right? Like, right. and there's people where, even in politically, we're like, they'll go to a yay vote. So nobody ever knows who actually voted for what, right? Like those kinds yeah. of moments. It's not, I don't really have a uh, proof text in my Bible. Like, well, the Christian thing to do is, right? <laughs> like, so I'll say, that's saying that same crazy science is true. White person cannot receive a negative blessing from the black 
So I'll say the idea that uh, politics determines truth uh, or is the path to power is, is not a new idea, right? And it's temporary. It's just emperor worship, like written. Yeah. It, 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 it really is. science is chaos. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. And so, some people choose that, yeah. So, so um, I, I know we're running short on time. I, I, I want to say this. The, um, it, in some ways, it seems obvious to us now that science is something that does work, right? We can point to a lot of examples of things that uh, answer Daniel's question. Like, there are a lot of things that science has done that superstition has not done, um, has not uh, shown up and, and extended our lives and, and so forth. And this is true for a lot of things. This was not always obvious. And in the year 1620, this was um, not obvious to the majority of people. And so when people were saying, how do we get power? Because they felt like, we, we need power, right? Uh, and people were reading Genesis 1, and it says, you are to rule over all things. They said, we should be doing this. Where do we get the power to do what God has called us to do? Uh, and they were also uh, British politicians. They were like, how do we get the power to run this, uh, this uh, uh, country? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, and so they turned to a lot of different answers. So this is a, a, a picture purportedly of an alchemist. I'm not exactly sure what he's doing. Yeah, it looks like an ice cream sundae. But, um, yeah. But um, uh, alchemy was um, very popular, very well established, right? The promise of alchemy is actually great, right? Right. It's right there. What if you could have a never-ending supply of gold? You have British politicians writing to various alchemists saying, like, help us out. We need some gold here, right? And, uh, you know, bring your skills to bear. So this was a, a popular thing, well-established. Well this is another al alchemical text. This is a, their instructions. Uh, the mention of repeatable. Um, this is how alchemy works. Uh, this is a set of instructions for combining some things. If you think that's repeatable, um, yeah, this like these are intentionally like arcane and difficult to to decode. That's the that's how alchemy uh, thought about things. Um, there were all kinds of other uh, m magic uh, stuff that was going on and popular among the monarchs of the time. You know, anyone who can do some some magic, you want to get them in your court so they can, um, you know, their power can be on your side. One of the things that I think. Um, is really interesting to me is something called angelology. And this was an idea at the time that, you know, God has sent an angel uh, from that corner of the universe to this other, it's on some kind of task. What if we could just kind of throw a, a net out, like, or a, or a Ghostbuster device, and like capture that angel, and then really like lean on him for you know some power, for some inside information, force him to do some stuff. This was a popular idea, like, and you know it seems like a great idea. Like, where do you get power from? Find a supernatural being, trap it, force it to do some work, right? Um, so these are ideas that were. Um, they're widespread, they were obvious to a lot of people, they were well-funded at the time, and a lot of people would have even said uh, 
this seems to be working. That guy sent me something that looks like gold. Um, this angel, to, you know, gave me some kind of uh, some kind of inside <laughs> charm, something. But but those things did not double our life expectancy. Did not put boots on the moon and SUVs on Mars. Did not give us the ability to scan the depths of the universe, right? And so instead, these kind of weirdo people with their telescopes and their microscopes and their uh, wanting to keep long lists of arcane details about like how flowers grow, that's the thing that actually worked. And um, so we're out of time to talk about why. Um, but I think um, I'll, I'll leave it with this. The thing that they, well, uh, no, I'll, I'll leave you with this one thought. Uh, there was a theological debate about what is going to happen with this cup. And this theological debate was a very significant debate at the time. Um, what is happening in this picture? Cooling. The coffee's cooling. Somebody said nothing. Cup, a cup is on the edge of a table. Okay. Imagine that this cup um, tips over, falls to the ground, and smashes. What would you um, say has happened in that case? Thermodynamics are not working because an object at rest. Ha <laughs> There you go. That would be the yeah. That's good. <laughs> okay. Was pushed. Okay, it was pushed, yeah. The cup felt so bad because it was such an ugly cup. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it threw itself off. Yeah. So there was a debate um, in this era, a very strong debate, um, between people who said something like, the cup is there because God wants it to be there. And if the cup falls, it's because God wanted it to fall. And if the cup hits the ground, it's because God wanted it to hit the ground. And if it smashes, it's because God wanted it to smash. And nothing about that, they said, is um, predictable or um, something that could be relied on. It's just the arbitrary will of God in that moment. And the other side said, there are laws at work. God has set up laws of thermodynamics, laws of gravity, laws of all these things. And so if this cup falls, it will be because one of those laws uh, made it fall. If it doesn't fall, it will be because one of those laws held it in place. If it, if it accelerates to the floor, it will be because one of those laws dictated that it would accelerate to the floor. And if it smashes, it would be because one of those laws of God uh, dictated that that's what would happen. The difference between those two things is a difference of does God work via laws or only arbitrarily directly? And that is um, that difference, the idea that um, God might uh, actually have set up laws. Um, the difference between those two stories, I think, uh, I would suggest is a difference of relationship. 
It's the difference between a God who is not desiring to work with um, uh, creatures and a God who desires to work and cooperate with creatures. The Genesis 1 God, I think, the Psalm 19 God, I think, is a God who says, I'm going to collaborate with creatures. I'm going to work through laws. I'm going to let them discover those laws so that they can participate in what I'm doing. I think that's the significance of it. And so the people who are promoting this idea, that God works through laws, were promoting the idea that God seeks humans to partner and participate in God's own work. And that, that therefore, this process of seeking to discover the laws is an act of love. It's an act that God calls us to, to seek out of a partnership with him and a partnership with creation, a kind of collaborative process. There's a lot more that I want to say about that. I know we're beyond time. Any last questions or comments? Yeah. That doesn't only work through law, so, right? As far as I know, uh, God can work through all kinds of different ways. Right. And, okay. and they would it's say, either or. yeah. Okay. So the, the question is, um, well, so they would have talked about several different ways that God, that God works uh, through a chain of causes and through, a, um, through direct uh, causes. Thing. And so um, there were very specific ways of kind of delineating this. But yeah, the question of like, why would God work through laws at all? God doesn't need to work through laws. The only reason, I think, could be because God seeks participation in that work. Okay. All right, thank you so much. Thank you.